Building a stronger financial foundation? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's Guide to Good Financial Planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. You'll learn how the tools in your financial plan reinforce each other to help you minimize taxes and offset potential risks. Grow your confidence by strengthening your finances today at northwesternmutual.com slash goodplan. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. All right, Stuart Mandel. And if anyone hasn't read it, I encourage you, just go to the athletic website, log on Stuart's story from last week about a, a, a potential way to play college football the 2020 season, but actually in 2021, starting on New Year's Day. And I won't go over the whole details here. I want you to read it, but it is really, I, I found it fascinating, Stuart, because it was it was thoughtful. It was providing solutions as opposed to criticizing. And uh, I'm fascinated, first of all, what kind of blowback have you gotten from people? Uh, yeah, not. I don't think I got blowback other than there are obviously some fans out there in parts of the country that don't want to even entertain the idea that football might not start on time or that there might not be fans in the stands. I think most people are realistic and know that right now um, that's a very serious possibility. And, and most importantly, athletic directors and commissioners and presidents are already at least starting to devise these contingency plans. So uh, there's any number of options that, might, you know, become reality eventually. But, um, you know, I think everybody realizes that we're kind of already up against it. Most schools are uh, holding online only classes, at least through summer term. So now you're talking about athletes not being able to get back to start training for the season until early August. They probably need more than a month. So uh, and of course, I don't think all schools are going to be aligned on this. So very strong possibility the season's going to be delayed in some way. It's whether it's a couple of weeks or as it's outlined in my story, all the way until January. Yeah. So what, and I'm interested, did anybody from within college football talk to you? Did you hear from people saying, Hey, either, Hey, there's some traction there or you're crazy or, you know, did you get reaction from within? Well, I called people beforehand to run things by them. And in fact, there was a couple of things I changed when I realized, Oh, that's not going to be realistic or this is not going to be realistic. But honestly, uh, nobody, it's almost like nobody wants to admit that this might have to happen. There's a lot of like, well, hopefully it doesn't come to that. You know, like hopefully we kick off Labor Day weekend. Um, and I've also, I also heard from people who say that even if it does go to spring semester, starting at New Year's Day, like you do in my story, is not realistic that it might not happen until after the Super Bowl. Huh. I, I thought the way you frame this New Year's Day starting and finishing on the same weekend as Final Four, I thought that was terrific. I mean, you talk about trying to make a spectacle out of a return. Uh, I, I, I thought that idea; those ideas were terrific. And um, I'm I'm with you in that. Look, th this is a way. It, it's a it's a possible way out. What my concern is, I guess, is that who's going to be the first. And I think what we're seeing in the country right now indicates it may be the SEC. But who's going to be the first to stand up and say, yeah, we're going, we're playing, right? Who's going to do that? It's going to depend a lot on what happens in our country over the next few months. I mean, I do think that in the last week, as you've seen a lot of states in the South start reopening, uh, whereas obviously here in California, they're being much more cautious, then okay, college football fans are starting to draw those parallels and say, oh, it could be 
exactly what you It could be the SEC saying we're ready to go and the Pac-12 saying absolutely not. We just don't know. Um, I hope that that the virus stays under control and, and starts going down, but we just, we just don't know what that's going to look like. As of now, it seems like the Power Five conferences are, are coordinating with each other. They're communicating with each other. Commissioners have a call almost every day of the week. And you would hope for the sake of college football that whatever they end up doing, they do in lockstep. I don't think it would be healthy if you play a season and, and some conferences or some schools are in it and some aren't. It should be all or nothing. Um, but obviously, college football is very decentralized. There's no commissioner. There's no – the NCAA really has very little to do with how it's run. And so if it were to come to that, where come September 1st, everybody in the South is itching and ready to go and people in the West or other parts of the country aren't, you could see it, unfortunately, becoming a little bit of a every man for himself. Yeah, I, that's exactly – you hit it, Stuart. That's what I've been thinking. I mean, obviously, we both live in Pac-12 territory, and that's where I hear a lot. And I know that's a concern within the PAC, for example, is that the nation has to go together on this. Hmm. But we've already seen it. It's only April, and we're seeing how the South is kind of going on its own schedule here. I I have a hard time seeing how in September, now, that's this is a projection, clearly, but in September, assuming there's no massive outbreak that Mississippi and Louisiana and Auburn and Georgia aren't just going to say, we're going, we're going to play. I think they're going to do that. If, if, if this all goes well, we're all sitting here, you know, Georgia has become like the test case there. You can, you know, it's, it's, I told somebody today, it's very surreal to be sitting here in California where they just extended the stay at home in the Bay area where they just extended the stay at home order through the end of the, through the end of May. And meanwhile, I'm on Twitter and I can see pictures of people in Georgia eating at Waffle House and getting their haircut and all of those things. Yeah. But I think, you know, I, I really try to keep this within football, you know, when I talk about this and not try to become a health expert that I'm not. But everything I read suggests that we're going to be going through a lot of starts and stops where things will open up and then the infection rate might spike and you have to slow it back down. And then you do that again. And so the question is, when these decisions for the football season have to be made, which I assume will be no later than July 1st, maybe even sooner than that, which wave will we be in? Because that's going to determine whether universities decide they can safely open in the fall. And then football is completely dependent on that. If I would say if, if in every conference there are certain universities that say we don't think it's going to be safe, then that's where I think everybody would have to agree to, Mm -hmm. to put it off. You know, the the scenario that you hope won't happen is that all 14 SEC universities are open for business and, three of the 12 Pac-12 schools or not, because that's where it could get kind of ugly. Exactly. Let me throw a couple of concepts, some of which you touch on in your story. I, you know, we, I've heard it bounced around. Conference-only games. Uh, your proposal that you put out has a 10-game season. Um, you know, The conference-only makes sense until I think about one thing in college football, which is fairly significant, and that's called Notre Dame. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you're going to have a season without Notre Dame. Uh you look at a school like Navy that plays probably its three most important games of the year are not in their conference, you know, army air force and Notre Dame. So the conference only thing makes sense at first glance. And then you realize, I mean, is South Carolina going to not play Clemson is Florida not going to play Florida state. Uh, if, if you say it's a shortened season, I mean, some of those schools would probably rather sacrifice a couple of their conference games than lose their big out of conference rivals. 
hopefully we can just play the full 12, 13 game season. Um, the reason I shortened it and the reason a lot of people suggest that it'll have to be shortened is the further you go away from September. And certainly once you get into a January start date, now you have to start thinking about the back end. NFL draft comes up in late April, maybe early May. Guys are going to want to start getting ready for that. You could potentially lose all the top players in the sport, theoretically, or, or a lot of them who don't want to risk injury and, and want to start training for the draft. Um, so there's that part of it. And there's also, hey, what about the 2021 football season? Um, we can't start in January, early February, and play 14, 15 games, then ask them to come back in September and play another full season. So I do think if the, if the season's delayed, even by a month or so or a couple months, you're going to have to start talking about a shortened schedule to preserve guys' bodies. Yeah, and, and you hit on another point I was going to touch on was we just went through the NFL draft, and I was actually talking to Yogi about this off our pod that, hey, some guys who made decisions to go pro in the, in the NFL and didn't get drafted as highly as they may have wanted still may be better off because of the uncertainty right now they had no idea in December, January, when they're making their decisions, this was going to happen. But because of the uncertainty in the college game, they may be better off going pro now. Would that follow through? If we have a delayed season in college football, would top-tier guys just say, the heck with it, I'm just going to go and get myself ready for the NFL draft? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're Trevor Lawrence, if you're Justin Fields, if you're Jamar Chase, and you really don't have much left to prove, you can, you can probably do that. Where it's going to be a, a much tougher decision is for – I mean, most NFL draft prospects need to get another season on tape. Maybe, maybe you're a senior who didn't start for the first time until you're a junior. Maybe you, you know, right now are considered a fourth rounder and you want the opportunity to prove you're a second rounder. Uh, I don't think most draft prospects are in a position to say I'm skipping the whole season. Um, that's why, but you, but you definitely want to give them a window to, I mean, I think it would be only fair that they at least have a window to, uh, for instance, in my scenario, right, most teams, unless, unless you're in the playoff, I mean, we're used to players skipping bowl games. So, so theoretically, you could at least get a six-week window in there to start prepping for the draft unless you're on a playoff team and want to obviously finish out that run. Um, and this, by the way, I, I'm saying all this, assuming the NFL will be kind of rigid. <laughs> they, they don't usually like to let anybody tell them you should push your draft back to late June because college season is going to be delayed. That, I think they'll work with them a little bit, but not to that extent. No, no, I think going to happen. Um, bowl games, you talk about that in your story. I'm, I'm interested. If I've, I've gathered from listening to you in the past, you're okay with the high number of bowl games? Yeah, I, I, I kind of, there was a time maybe 10 years ago or more where I didn't like it. And then I went totally the other direction. Um, it's not hurting anybody. I mean, it's a, no, you can play right. the Camellia Bowl, play whatever, but you don't have to watch it if you're not interested. But the interesting thing is those games do much better than I think people would expect. And it's, it's December. There's not a lot else going on. Um, and it gives an opportunity for, for the group of five schools that, uh, you know, there's a lot of those teams that I don't see play a game during the regular season. And then that bowl game is the first chance I get to see Louisiana Lafayette or, or any number of those schools. So, um, no, I don't have a problem. Now it is getting even bigger. There's three more games coming this year. And, you know, that was some of the discussions I had leading into that article was talking with bowl officials who are basically whatever they decide to do, we'll adapt to it because we, we can't go a whole year and just 
not play the bowl game. Right. A lot of these bowls, frankly, wouldn't survive that. And that's why I was going to go, because this ties into my other point I wanted to bring up. Um, the vast – look, bowl games have several tiers, and the top-tier bowl games are terrific, and they have history, and they sell, and that's fine. A growing number of them exist, and someone who started a bowl game <laughs> – not that long ago told me you only need two things. You need an ESPN contract and you need a title sponsor. You don't have to sell a ticket. Those two, if you have those two things, you have a game. My point being a lot of them are TV programming, right? There are very few people in the stands, which gets into the point of, are we prepared? Do you think college football is legitimately preparing Stuart for football without fans? I, I'll ask you, and I'll tell you why. I was talking to somebody in my other world, tennis, who's very involved in American tennis tournaments, and they are actively talking about coming back sometime summer or fall, they hope. But it's almost every scenario is closed. Almost mm -hmm. every scenario they're discussing is to put on a tour, to have events, but there will not be spectators. So that's where I'm going with this. Do you think college football is prepared for that? I think there's a little bit of a, I think that's a very polarizing topic right now. I think that some people who are reading what health experts are saying realize that that's, we're a long ways away. That's going to be the very last thing that comes back. Large events with 70,000 people in the stands. And that might not be till sometime in 2021. But there's others, coaches, commissioners, ADs, who feel like if, if it's not safe for the fans to come, that's probably not safe for the players. Or the fans are too important a part of college football to play the games without them. Uh, I think at the end of the day, as we know, they're going to do everything possible to play a football season. They cannot afford – Alabama cannot afford to skip a football season because 85% of their revenue comes from football. And so if it means, okay, you're going to lose ticket revenue, which is a substantial amount of money, don't get me wrong, but at least keep the TV money – you got to do that. You can't say we're going to lose both. So are they prepared for it? No, but I think they're probably going to have to start accepting that that's, that's probably the reality, especially in the fall. Maybe if you can buy some time and there's enough medical advances and testing advances that that's more feasible in January, February. Okay. But there's not going to be fans in a football stadium in September. I'm not a health expert. I feel pretty confident saying that though. Yeah. All right, let me bounce around a couple of other just college football things. Did What did you take away from the draft we just had? 40, I think it was 40 SEC players in the first three rounds, basically 40 out of 100 or a little over 100. Um, surprise you? Is it is it a true statement of the balance in college football right now? I mean, it's been it's been building that way for probably 15 years. And I think that there was a point maybe a few years ago where the SEC had a down year or two and people thought maybe the ACC or somebody else was going to catch up to them. And then it went in the complete other direction. Um, they spend the most money on coaches. They spend the most money on recruiting. The South has the most talent uh, across the board. So it's not surprising. They're bringing in the most talent in recruiting. They're signing all the top 10 classes. It's not surprising that they're then putting the most players in the NFL. I thought what was particularly amazing about this year though was just how much LSU and Alabama put in there including 14 players that tied for the record for LSU uh, I covered that one versus two game they had this year and you kind of got that sense you were watching two very special teams with a lot of NFL players on the field and 
and the draft confirmed that. Yeah. Um, the, 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 I listened to a, a conversation last week that Jack Swarbrick, the Notre Dame athletic director had, um, and he was answering some questions and I thought he was extremely open, honest in, com- in talking about the inequity that we've heard. You've written a lot about, you talk a lot about the revenue inequities within the conferences. And of course, Notre Dame factors into this. And he talked about it on two fronts. He, he was asked about Notre Dame's television deal. And he said, our, look, our NBC deal, our over-the-air deal is fine. But he said the conference networks are what's causing, and it's two of them, it's the SEC network and the Big Ten network that are causing a, an incredibly growing disparity, which again has been documented. But he said that, and the other issue he mentions was, was name image likeness, as the acronym goes, the NIL. And he's concerned about that if the revenue disparity and where the SEC and the Big Ten have an advantage play into NIL issues and create a recruiting issue. He said, that's the two things that may have to be addressed significantly. And I was pretty candid of him to say, to admit that, that for example, Notre Dame's over the air package, he's completely fine with, but they don't have a conference TV package. And that's where he fears that college football's stratification is going to accelerate. It's interesting he said that because Notre Dame's deal with NBC is actually pretty modest Mm -hmm. uh, compared to, I mean, Purdue makes a lot more from just picking them out at random. Purdue makes a lot more from the Big Ten's TV rights than than Notre Dame does from from its NBC deal. And I don't think that's all just the Big Ten network. But, you know, the NIL issue, and and we're recording this a few hours after the NCAA Board of Governors uh, put out their their recommendations. Um, I get the concern why they think that would disproportionately favor schools. But at the same time, this proposal or this set of recommendations specifically says the schools can't be involved in the payments. This is entirely about athletes getting endorsement deals, using their social media accounts to make money separate from, from what the schools bring in. Now, I'm not naive. I, I realize that we're opening a, a floodgates here for Alabama booster to get involved and, and, uh, and, and schools with, I would say the bigger donor bases, there might be more opportunities, but uh, at the same time, it can also be kind of an equalizer in that, especially with the non-revenue sports, you know, imagine what, uh, uh, you know, the next Katie Ledecky might be able to, um, you know, could stay in college, could not, would not necessarily feel like they have to leave college to go start training for the Olympic because they can monetize their social media account while they're still playing in college. Um, I think it's going to be a great opportunity for some women's athletes, non-revenue sports athletes who they may not be as famous as uh, to the whole country as Tua or Joe Burrow, but within their sport, you know, they ha- they have a lot of young fans who look up to them and follow them on Instagram, and uh, and that's what that's what these rules are built for. They're not they're not intended for um, Alabama to go out and line up deals for their their athletes. Uh, it's intended for the athletes to go out and monetize it themselves. Yeah, and and, and to complete the thought, because you touched on it perfectly there, Stuart, what Jack Swarbrick talked about was that very point. He said, look, this is right, because if a student has the, you know, Notre Dame's, again, their foundation has been, if it's right for a student, it's right for everybody. So if a cello player in the 
orchestra can get hired in the summer and go play for their local philharmonic, right? They can do that. A, a student can start an app in their dorm room and monetize that. Um, I think the inference you drew originally was the same inference I drew, which was the concept of in, uh, affecting recruiting, the imbalance in recruiting, where the offensive tackle at LSU suddenly gets a major deal to go down and sign autographs at the car dealership. I thought that that's at least that's what I inferred to. Yeah. And the doc, I read the document and um, I was, I was impressed actually with how on the ball it was in terms of the social media aspect of it and acknowledging exactly what you said. Hey, all the other students, any, anybody on our campus could start a cooking channel on YouTube and if it becomes popular, make money off it. So why, it's not fair to keep the, the football player from doing that. There's a lot of language in there though, about attempting to regulate the recruiting aspect of it that, you know, not ma- making sure boosters aren't uh, using this as a way to influence recruiting or, or, you know, there's going to be some mechanism to a- any deal that anybody gets has to be at fair market value. And I, I don't know how realistic that is. That's a, that's an admirable goal. Um, but it, it's not like they've had much success over the years monitoring the illicit payments that, that uh, boosters make now in recruiting, at least in some places. So I'm not sure why these changes in rules would change that that much, but at the end of the day, the top recruits right now, they go to Alabama, Clemson, LSU, Ohio State. I don't think that's going to change one way or the other because of NIL rules. Let me ask you about uh, something that's been ongoing in college football for a long time, which is the arms race. And uh, and as long as I've been around, longer than you, I've watched arms race be, convert, be a conversation topic in college football forever. And it was um, it's ranged in various things from facilities to head coach salaries, to January admits, all these things. And now, to, at least to me, more recently, it's become assistant coach salaries, mm-hmm. coordinator salaries that are just astronomical. I don't know how else to say it. Coming out of this now, I'm wondering if that's going to be, if there's going to be a major emergency break hit on that aspect of the college football arms race on, it may be head coach salaries as well, Stuart, but especially coordinator salaries. What do you think on that? I think this this economic down, this rapid economic crisis we're in has been a real wake-up call for colleges because they had it so good for so long. The money just kept coming, going up and up and up and up. Spend, spend, spend. And they, they never save any of it. They just find a way to spend it. I mean, just think about, remember, it was what, late February, early to mid to late February that Mel Tucker, after one year at Colorado, doubled his salary by getting the job at Michigan State. So two months later, his successor, Carl Drell, has to take a 10% pay cut because of the crisis that Colorado is under. And lots of other coaches and ADs right, have, have taken pay cuts or soon will take pay cuts. That's how quickly it turned overnight once the NCAA tournament got canceled and, and spring sports got canceled. So I think it's a huge wake-up call. I think it's going to put the, it's definitely going to put spending on hold for at least a year or two. But nothing stays that way for long in college <laughs> sports. We will eventually come out of this. And I would just point to the fact that there's a two-year period between 2023 and 2025 when four of the five power conferences have TV deals coming up. The college football playoffs next deal will come up. And live sports is still going to be extremely valuable to television networks. So I would assume there will be we, – we will go through a period where people are being uh, more frugal. And then once that next wave of contracts come in, they'll go right back to figuring out ways to spend all of it. 
Well, that's why, and you hit it right there, Stuart. I guess that's what I thought because I have understood the same thing. Look, there's going to be in the eyes of many of the conferences a payoff down the road, but there's going to be a hit coming out of this pandemic. We none of us knows what yet. Can we bridge that? I mean, we don't know the answers. Obviously, I'm rhetorically asking, can we bridge the gap in college football from whatever hit this is going to be until there's a payoff? And then what's the payoff going to be? Because we're going to bridge a little bit in the media here. Cord cutting is only accelerating. Streaming is growing, right? I think satellite television, I, I think this may accelerate the demise of satellite television other than in rural America, where it is the, the delivery system still. But is streaming, and this is clearly something that a lot of conferences are hoping for, is streaming going to invest in live sport? They're growing right now. <laughs> they're, they're growing right now with no live sport, right? When you saw that Apple recently had conversations with the Pac-12, I think they were very preliminary because we're still a couple years away from the Pac-12 being even able to enter negotiations on that, that deal. But I think that they all, all those commissioners have been hoping for some time that when their next contracts come up for for bidding that it will be more than just espn and fox and cbs that that it'll be amazon and apple and netflix that everybody because then the more that they do that the more it drives up the price but uh, this is a very interesting time to try to sort through with media analysts because on the one hand i mean nobody is say nobody uh, disney is taking a considerable hit right now i mean this has just been brutal for their company and it may continue to be for some time and so that has led some to suggest, hey, ESPN is not going to be in a position to throw money around for the next several years. To, and they want to keep Monday Night Football. That's their first priority, obviously. But on the other hand, they look at the viewers they're getting for the Michael Jordan documentary, for the NFL draft. If anything, I think we're going to all come out of this, whenever it is, with a greater appreciation for televised sports, especially if people can't go to the games. And so it becomes even more important to ESPN, Fox, and everybody else to make sure they lock, keep the deals they have with the leagues they have now and hopefully lock up new ones. So I do think it'll be very, very profitable. Um, and, and I like the phrase you used before about how do we bridge it? Because it would be, you know, you, you see all the, you know, a couple of schools have already cut sports teams. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of panic feeling like if we lose football money next year, we're going to have to cut teams left and right. And I just hope that there'll be some long-term thinking of if we can just ride this out for the next few years, help is on the way. There is going to be an influx of money. So rather than blow up your athletic department, you know, just kind of buckle down for a few years and know that, that you're eventually going to not only just be made whole, but, but probably be even better off than you were before this. Yeah. Maybe the last one here, because it's following up on this point of television, for, for a long time now, in essence, uh, Fox has funded Major League Baseball through Fox Network and then through all of the regional networks. And ESPN's had a piece of baseball, but basically Fox has been the big investor. Flip it to college football. ESPN owns college football, right? Fox has a piece of it, but ESPN pretty much runs it. I'm wondering coming out of this because of what you talked about, does ESPN and can they shift slowly and perhaps over time to ESPN plus some college football programming, a streaming service that drives additional revenue. Disney has a huge, huge, huge investment, right? In streaming ESPN plus, I mean, Disney plus has 50 million subscribers already. Um, 
and you see a lot of uh, promos, right? You, I don't know what the deal is. I think you can get Disney, Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and Hulu yeah, together. Bundle. Yeah, bundle. So they have major incentive to beef up ESPN Plus, but at the same time, I mean, the, the Big 12 has a deal with ESPN Plus. They put a bunch of basketball games on there last year, and the fans revolted. How come I have to, I have, to have ESPN Plus to watch my West Virginia basketball game? So, um, you know, the NFL continues to be very um, beholden to the legacy networks. They'll, they'll dip their toe in Amazon Prime or whatnot, but they still really much uh, um, value it being available to the widest audience possible. And I think that's probably true with college conferences too. I think they will be, uh, they know streaming is a big, big part of it. And look, if you make a deal with ESPN, it includes them streaming the games too. It's not one or the other. Um, but, you know, you have to tread very carefully about um, embracing new technology, but not moving too far ahead of where oh, the yeah. consumers are right now. No, I think I, and I'll speak now, I mean, look, with, eight years of Pac-12 Network, I think we've learned that as much as we push streaming as a, as a viable option for those who can't otherwise get the network, there are people in certain demos. Yeah. <laughs> and thankfully, Stuart knows we're in a little bit more of a technologically advanced place here, but a lot of people around the Pac footprint aren't, and they're not up to speed with that. They want to be able to push a button and put their big screen on and see the game. And they don't want to deal with streaming and they don't want to deal with fiddling with the other stuff. So yes, that's the balance. And that's why I'm suggesting it wouldn't be everything. It would be a slow move, but I'm just wondering about, because of, because of exactly what you said, how much Disney has invested in ESPN plus as being the counter to cord cutting. Uh, that if that is, I just wonder coming out of that, if that's not something we're going to see, and it's a little bit more inside TV stuff, but going ahead, how important ESPN has been to college football. And how important they are to the bowl, the bowl season we talked about. That is all ESPN, right? Right. Um, you know, that that's something to me, I think, as baseball played along with Fox, they had to because Fox was their biggest investor. I think college football and ESPN, to me, I look at it as a similar relationship. Yeah, I mean, look, Fox has made huge inroads. I, I worked at Fox from 2014 to 17, 2014 six, to 16 seasons. And we didn't yet have any, you know, we weren't showing Ohio state, Michigan and, and Michigan was kind of some of these huge games that they were able to show last year. I think last year was a huge year for Fox. They did the big noon kickoff and, and uh, it just worked out that they had all these Ohio state games and Ohio state was undefeated last year. Um, it would not surprise me if in the next wave of TV contracts, they're taken more seriously than they have been to this point by the conferences that, haven't been involved with them to this point, but ESPN is still clearly the the leader, uh, and and the most importantly because of what you said earlier, postseason. I mean, they own the playoff. Yeah, uh, I can't see anybody getting the playoff away from them. Uh, and as long as they have that, basically ESPN's whole the whole season feeds into the playoff. Right? People get kind of sick of those those promos, of who's in, and and the weekly ranking shows that start in October. But uh, they'll continue to be a huge part of the sport. I have no doubt, and. That's why it'll be interesting to see, you know, what where Disney will be as a company after if the theme parks are closed for a whole year. Um, if you can't go to a movie theater to see the new Disney movies for a whole year, like where will that company be a year or two from now when it's time to shell out money for Monday Night Football and then the Big Ten? And I think the NBA is in there somewhere. You know, you, you would probably know better than me. So uh, it'll be very interesting to watch. All right. Last one. And uh, Yogi couldn't be with us. 
because he's moving and he's painting as, as we're doing this. So in absentia, though, I have to get one specific Pac-12 question to start. And I, I started those off by saying how much I admired your creativity and thinking outside the box on your piece about a potential uh, a January start for college football. Let me go back to my friend Wilner last year, his 9 a.m. kick for the, Pac-10, for the Pac-12, excuse me, 9 a.m. kick, 10 a.m. mountain time kick. It's, I don't think there's any chance of it would happen coming out of the pandemic, but let's say 2021. Give me your take on viability. It's probably more viable for some schools than others. Um, I mean, obviously, you don't want to alienate your own fans and Oregon fans and Washington fans who spend all day tailgating on the lake uh, are not going to have much of a affinity, I would think, for 9 a.m. kickoffs. Maybe some other schools where in-stadium attendance is not that great to begin with or there's not much of a tailgating scene. Maybe you would do that for for increased TV exposure. I mean, what I what I say about the Pac-12, I mean, it's a dilemma that, and I sympathize with the fans because, you know, one thing they complain about very a lot is night 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 games, right? Games that kick off at ten thirty Eastern, either because it's inconvenient for them to attend or because those games don't get seen much on the East Coast. Well, you can't realistically expect TV to fit all of the Pac-12's games on Saturday into two TV windows, right? noon Pacific and 3.30 or 4 Pacific. You need three TV windows. So if you don't like the nighttime kickoffs, then you've got to be open to the 9 a.m. kickoffs or you're just not going to be on television. You know, it's it's one or the other. Yeah, and and I think the other point to emphasize is, and you're right, For I, I personally think for certain schools, it would be a non-starter for a lot of reasons we don't have time to go into here, but you're talking about one. It's not the full season of 9 a.m., you'd be talking about one game. And my view has always been, if you do it right, you can make it like the NFL has made the London games. You make them an experience. And that's a word that gets thrown around a lot, but I really believe it. I've seen it firsthand in the London games, it works. And so if you go once and you make it an experience, and if you're the home team and you do it once every two or three years, to me, that's a lot more palatable than Thursday night games or Friday night games. That's just my personal view. I would be if make I an event out of it. Um, you know, think about when the world cup is played at, um, you know, in a completely different time zone than us and people here on the West coast get up at five or 6am to watch the world cup games yeah. and, and the bars open early and it's really fun. I think you could do that. Like you said, like one Oregon game or one Washington game every three years to do that. Um, yeah, I think it would be fun, and it would definitely uh, – I mean, the number one thing is the Pac-12 needs more exposure. Nobody could argue that. And that – I mean, the big noon kickoff, I mentioned it earlier, was extremely successful for Fox last year. It was a great uh, strategy to move away from competing with uh, ABC's primetime game and basically have that window to yourself. And But it was always the Big Ten. I think Big Ten or Big 12. Like, it would be probably valuable to the Pac-12 to show up in there every so often. Stuart, we ran long, but thank you. Building a stronger financial foundation? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's Guide to Good Financial Planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. You'll learn how the tools in your financial plan reinforce each other to help you minimize taxes and offset potential risks. 
Grow your confidence by strengthening your finances today at northwesternmutual.com slash goodplan. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin.